Welcome to episode 68, Stimulant Abuse and How It Pairs with Sex, by Dr. David Fawcett, licensed clinical social worker. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello, my name is Dr. David Fawcett, a social worker and clinical sexologist specializing in addiction, sexuality, and co-occurring disorders. I'm the author of Lust, Men, and Meth, A Gay Men's Guide to Sex and Recovery, which explores the intersection of gay men, drug use, and high-risk sexual behavior, and which was named 2016 Best Nonfiction Literature by Pause Magazine. I'm also Vice President for Clinical Programming at Seeking Integrity, which develops and operates treatment programs for fused drug and sex behaviors, also known as chemsex, and drug and porn addiction. Finally, I'm the proud executive producer of a documentary called Crystal City, which follows eight gay men as they move into recovery from crystal meth in New York. Crystal City is available on Amazon Prime. This podcast reviews the use of stimulants and other drugs when they're paired with sexual behavior and the complications that can create both in the lives of the user and we'll review effective strategies that the clinician can employ for recovery from this problem to re-differentiate both the drug use and the sexual attraction that often becomes fused in this circumstance. However, before we begin, I think it's important to point out that this particular topic, and because of the way it works in the brain, methamphetamine and sex, and actually for that matter, porn, all are highly visual, highly stimulative, and really affect the reward circuitry that is easily triggered. So before any presentation, or really discussing this with any of my clients, I also talk about triggering behaviors, and I employ systems for the client to ground themselves, or at least to be warned that there may be triggering discussions or ideas, or from doing a presentation, triggering visual imagery. So some of the grounding techniques I review with clients are uh, using grounding cords, for example, visualizing a safe place, doing some consistent deep breathing, uh, or any other tools they may have to help ground themselves as we move into this material. So I think that's an important uh, aspect to recall and remember when you're doing this kind of work. So when we're talking about chemsex, or this paired or fused stimulants and sex, there's a lot of growing data that shows this is a really severe problem, both in the U.S. and worldwide. For example, the New York City Health Department found that methamphetamine deaths overdosed, that methamphetamine overdoses increased by 160% from 2013 to 2014. We also know that among Black and Latinx young men who have sex with men, we're seeing a tremendous increase in the amount of meth use particularly, and other amphetamines as well, when they combine with sex. In fact, this has been symptomically merged with the HIV epidemic, and one is fueling the other. So we see particularly high rates of HIV seroconversion among young black men who have sex with men and Latinx men who have sex with men. And we see that often that high-risk behavior 
is fueled by amphetamine use, particularly methamphetamine. We also know that 6 out of 10 African-American MSM are predicted to be HIV positive by the age of 40. So this represents a huge crisis in this country. We also know that 20% of trans women regularly use meth. We also know that among that population, injection drug use was higher than normal, up to one-third, 34%. We also know that that often is related to sex work and carries a high risk for HIV and hep C. And finally, on the international stage, we know that this is a problem as well. An organization called Antidote, which is in the UK and which serves LGBT drug and alcohol clients, reported that 60% of their clients injected drugs last year, and most of those drugs were methamphetamine. And in Sydney, Australia, the University of New South Wales 2015 Sydney Gate Community Periodic Survey, which is a mouthful, said that more than 30% of those surveyed had used meth in the prior six months. Now, methamphetamine use, or chemsex, is not just a problem among men who have sex with men, although the term originated in London and was specific to gay men and dealing with some of the psychosocial precursors that can affect this behavior. But we also see this pairing or fusing of drugs and sex in heterosexuals as well. Think of the heterosexual man who may use cocaine and go see prostitutes. Eventually, those become paired behaviors. Or we may see that someone uses alcohol in order to numb their feelings of sexual attraction that they may not be comfortable with. For example, they may be, a man may be attracted to another man and uses alcohol to numb those feelings and then ultimately disinhibit their sexual behavior. So what we're seeing worldwide is this massive increase in the use of stimulants, particularly methamphetamine, and sex. And we've seen these waves before, but the current wave really started around 2000 and is going full steam. And there are several purposes or several reasons for that, which we'll discuss in this podcast. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about this sex and drug connection. So chemsex is really when we're combining synthetic amphetamines, mostly meth, with other drugs and high-risk sex. This has several slang terminologies, one being party and play, and that is abbreviated PNP, which you will see in profiles on Grindr, Scruff, and other apps, dating apps that are used for sexual connection and drug exchange. It can be called chemsex, it can be called meth sex, and really for the last five years or so, this has really, really been tremendously facilitated by apps like Grindr, Scruff, and other dating apps, which allow people to geolocate both sexual partners and drugs in just a matter of minutes anywhere in the world. For example, I live in Fort Lauderdale, which is a big gay tourist destination. We have a lot of clients that come in, not clients, a lot of guests that come in, land and turn on their phones and can immediately find people in their area that are willing to have sex and willing to party and play and can provide drugs as well. So this whole thing has become uh, very private, very confidential, and very easy. 
Some of the most common drugs we see involved here are methamphetamine, which we're going to talk about in great detail today. Another drug called GHB, which is gamihydroxybutyrate, which is very similar to the drug rohypnol in, in, in that it has very highly sedative properties. And it can also, by the way, easily overdose. Uh, GHB, sometimes known in another chemical form as GBL, is liquid and it's easily mixed. And the difference between what someone would describe as a really good high and a fatal overdose because of respiratory failure is very small. And so really the big danger of the chemsex drugs is GHB, simply because it's so easy to overdose. People can overdose on methamphetamine as well. And that can happen through heart attack, stroke, uh, actual toxicity, uh, other kinds of cardiac damage, and uh, other kinds of brain damage as well. Some people think you cannot overdose on meth. You certainly can. Other drugs in this chemsex um, package include cocaine, uh, both powder form and crack cocaine. Another drug called ketamine, or known as K. A lot of these drugs in the gay community are known as alphabet. G for gamma-hydroxybutyrate, K for ketamine, X for ecstasy. Uh, ketamine is another drug that is used to be more common. It's uh, because of law enforcement. It's harder to find these days, but it can be used as a tranquilizer, a pain reliever. We're seeing it come to the fore again as a very effective antidepressant of last resort. And uh, K sometimes is blended into this formula of chemicals and drugs uh, to potentiate that high. We see ecstasy, also known as mollies, uh, which these days, in the United States at least, really a kind of a garbage can of various drugs and, and uh, fillers that aren't necessarily useful. And then uh, what gay men call poppers, amyl or butyl nitrate. These are cardiac drugs that originally came in little vials. Um, people, when they were having angina, would pop the top off and inhale. Uh, they, we have other drugs for cardiac patients these days, but poppers are still around, and gay men use them because at the moment of orgasm or near orgasm, if they uh, sniff those poppers or inhale it, it really smooths out all the long muscles in the body, um, lowers blood pressure, kind of blows out all the, all the vessels, which uh, accentuates the orgasm and also makes sex more comfortable. In the UK, there's another drug called mephedrone, which is similar to methamphetamine that's used. And more and more now we're seeing what we call novel psychoactive substances, these kind of uh, drugs, synthetic drugs that are formulated in labs around the country and distributed on the internet. But with chemsex per se, the drugs that we're talking about, the, the stars of the show, if you will, are methamphetamine, uh, GHB, uh, often ecstasy, and then combine that with sex. On the tail end of a drug run, which with chemsex can last four or five days, uh, people often try to temper the edginess um, with benzodiazepines uh, or even opioids these days uh, to kind of calm down. So what are the effects of this sex drug connection in general? So one of the primary effects is that, is that there are longer periods of preoccupation, I mean sexual preoccupation and sexual intercourse. So when someone, a uh, client comes to me, a chemsex client says they were out on a drug run, which may have lasted five or six days, that really is characterized by almost constant 
um, and painful heightened sexual desire that uh, really there's no relief for. Uh, clients will often tell me that they'll have an orgasm, which usually uh, would cause that sexual desire to subside. It doesn't have any impact on them when they're on these effects of these drugs, and they're constantly looking for more. And we'll talk about why that is and the role of dopamine in a moment. Uh, sexual intercourse, people actually um, injure themselves. I've had clients who masturbated for hours or days and would end up actually injuring themselves uh, from that constant irritation. Uh, other things that happen, people become careless in their choice of partner. Uh, so someone, um, I would say, my clients tell me their standards go down. Um, really almost anyone, they become desperate for physical contact uh, in a sexual way. And oftentimes, because it's so much bother, uh, toward the end of their meth careers, a lot of clients won't even bother to have sex or hook up with another person. They'll just watch porn and masturbate at home. Other things we find, the effects of the sex drug connection, really no use of condoms at all. Uh, I've had many clients who um, set the best of intention to use clients and never got to it. Uh, we see a heightened use, um, or rather heightened increased receptive anal intercourse. This would be, uh, in street jargon, the bottom in the sexual of the sexual partners. This would be the person... Um, who is on the bottom, and that, of course, is the highest risk sexual position for transmission of HIV and Hep C. And so if you combine this uh, phenomenon of not using condoms and increased insert of receptive anal intercourse, uh, you see the almost immediately the high risk for HIV among chemsex users. I mentioned the increased sexual desire, um, and we know that tolerance happens quickly. I'll talk more about this in a little bit. Tolerance with the dopamine where more and more is needed to achieve the same effect. And then we have this really high relapse risk that characterizes chemsex simply because sex and drugs have become fused. And it's really hard to differentiate them again. So if uh, someone is in recovery, they may not be using methamphetamine. But if they see a sexy person on the street, uh, they may get a little sexual desire, and that will almost immediately be accompanied by a drug craving. And that can happen in the reverse as well. People may have a drug craving uh, and almost immediately have a, sexual, uh, a heightened sexual arousal. So these two become paired. And so you start to quickly start to see the, uh, the profile of risk in, in chemsex, and as we're seeing it today. Now, it's interesting, too, I mentioned that methamphetamine is not used by itself, but that polydrug use is really common among meth users. And there's been several studies that looked at this, um, and only about 8% of meth users reported only using meth, in other words, using no other drugs. 15% reported using one other drug, and that's probably often GHB. 20% uh, reported using two other drugs, 15% reported three drugs, and eight reported four or more. So really the bulk of, of chemsex users are using probably three or four drugs at one time to uh, achieve this high and perpetuate the uh, course of this chemsex phenomenon that we'll talk about in great detail. So some of the contexts of chemsex use, there's several factors that really underlie this. One, 
the effect of multiple stigmatized identities. What does that mean? It means that a lot of the people we see for high-risk chemsex use have experienced these multiple identities that are stigmatized in our society. And we know that the more stigmatized identities that someone has, the greater their risk for addiction, for mental health concerns, and actually for poor health and shorter lifespan as well. So mental health concerns, as I mentioned, substance abuse problems, relationship challenges, um, and so on. What are some of these identities? It may be an ethnic or racial minority. It may be a sexual minority. It may be someone on disability. More than half the people uh, using methamphetamine are also HIV positive, and many of those are on HIV-related HIV disability. There may be a lot of social isolation. There may be a lot of financial difficulties that go with those uh, lack of ability to work. There may be caretaking for children and grandchildren. There may be social devaluation in many ways. Someone may have sex work. Someone may be HIV positive or living with hep C. Uh, there may be violence. There may be suicide. And there's certainly a great deal of intra-community stigma. And by that I mean within the gay community, methamphetamine users are really looked down upon. And I've had clients who were falling down alcoholics who uh, were really judgmental about meth users. So uh, all these effects of multiple stigmatized identities can really have an impact. Another second factor here is this really need for intensity. And when we look at chemsex, this paired or fused drug and sexual behavior, along with sex addiction and porn addiction, all of them have intensity in common. By that I mean this, this heightened rate of stimulation that is needed, uh, or the desired effect, rather. And we know that this need for intensity only grows as tolerance develops. So people will find themselves doing more and more outrageous things, or using more drugs, or using different drugs, or combining things, or moving into other high-risk behaviors just to keep that level of stimulation going. We also see this in recovery when people have a great intolerance for boredom, for open space, for downtime. They need to fill that in, and oftentimes they'll fill it in with drama of some sort. Uh, so this need for intensity is reflected in the heightened sexual experience, in thrills. We see people moving into more taboo forms of sexual behavior, into rougher forms or more high-risk uh, behavior, uh, a lot of numbing behaviors. So uh, people, in fact, methamphetamine is probably uh, one of the single best drugs to help someone dissociate or numb from uncomfortable feelings. Uh, I had a client once describe taking a hit of meth as about eight hours of bulletproof happiness when he could just escape his life. Um, and also, there's another driver here in this need for intensity in terms of connection and social connection. And I think that ability to feel connected to someone really counteracts this almost overpowering sense of loneliness that we see in the MSM communities, really in, as society as a whole, but um, in the gay community particularly. And methamphetamine provides this sort of chemical connection, and I put a connection in air quotes because it's really, in my opinion, not authentic. And especially if we're looking at sexual connection, there's really no level of intimacy at all, as I would define it as a sex therapist, in terms of intimacy being um, emotional awareness, empathy, um, exchange of energy, really being tuned into the partner. Uh, sex on meth is really 
all about having sex with a body, a physical body, and that body is usually a, a playing a role or a prop in the fantasy that's that's unfolding in the meth user's head. So it's really uh, a situation in which the partner is very much objectified as opposed to one where there's a great connection with that partner. A third context for chemsex use would be cognitive, what I call cognitive escapism, which is this relief from the emotional pain associated with, with life in general. And that can be uh, HIV status, it can be mental health concerns, it can be poverty. In fact, we see uh, meth use really soaring, in fact, overtaking opioid uh, overdoses and busts in many parts of the United States because meth is such an effective way to dissociate or numb those uncomfortable feelings. And we see that not necessarily just among the MSM community, but we see it among heterosexuals as well in areas of the country that are economically deprived, where people are experiencing uh, the situation where their children will have a lower uh, level of care than they did, where there's economic decline, there's a lack of jobs. And in those areas, we find that meth is very popular. <clears throat> Other kinds of cognitive escapism, the minority stress that I mentioned, um, reduced sexual stamina, uh, poverty, reduced energy levels, low self-esteem or low self-worth, other medical complications, and ultimately the ravages of the addiction itself. One of the things I often see among men who are living with HIV in their 40s or 50s, or in other words, they've lived with it for a long time, is that they're aging in the gay community, which is a hard thing to do. They're feeling less connected, they're feeling less attractive, they're feeling less sexual, and along comes methamphetamine, and it kind of wipes all that away. And they feel great, they feel uh, sexual, they feel erotic, and they're off and running. <clears throat> Those men often, the words that I hear from so many of them are, I feel like damaged goods. And that really is striking to me, and that um, driving that need to kind of overcome that overwhelming sense of being flawed or a shame. We also know that there's a history of trauma in most, most of these clients. In fact, trauma really underlies the bulk of addiction. And uh, we see that in many forms. This can be rejection. It can be abuse and violence. It can be emotional or physical or sexual abuse. Uh, it can be unfair treatment in the legal system, minority stress, lack of social, mental health, physical support. And we know also that trauma, uh, and I'll use the distinction that sometimes is used in EMDR with trauma with a capital T being the kind of overwhelming war injury or car accident or natural disaster. But we know that the effects of lowercase t trauma, uh, which I think in this population could be bullying, for example, also can result in a lot of uh, PTSD and other kinds of complications as that person grows up. So what is the appeal of chemsex? So this is the context in which it occurs. So why do people do it? What do they get? So one thing, probably the primary thing, is that ability to dissociate, to check out, float away, numb, whatever you want to call it. Um, methamphetamine is tremendously appealing to just step out of one's life when one appears to have no other choice or means to do so. And so that ability to not manage uncomfortable feelings in a healthy way is a primary hallmark of this. We see that there's a lot of 
numbing or uh, neutralizing of feelings of shame or stigma. And shame or stigma really is one of the identifying criteria of many people who are vulnerable to chemsex simply because of their sexual orientation or their uh, ethnic or racial backgrounds or some other kinds of issues they've had. But uh, shame really kind of is turned inside out with methamphetamine. And it's, a, it's an effective way at first for people to feel like they're overwhelming it. <clears throat> There's the ability to disinhibit or heighten sexual confidence and desire. So a lot of people, as I mentioned, they may be getting older, they may not feel sexually attractive. Methamphetamine wipes all that away and makes them feel hot. It really heightens their sexual confidence, and it, more than anything else, boosts that sexual desire. And that's simply neurochemical. We'll talk about that in a moment, why that happens. But sexual desire goes through the roof. People become highly aroused when they're on methamphetamine. Another appeal, as I mentioned, that inability to tolerate uh, a lack of stimulation, so boredom. We see that boredom is, is something that is really a problem for people to handle. And this, by the way, is something to keep in mind if you're helping someone in recovery, is to really help them structure their time. Because most chemsex addicts have a huge intolerance for sitting around, empty space, lack of stimulation. And if they're not getting it in healthy ways, they'll create it in unhealthy ways. Um, and finally, I mentioned before that, that search for connection, that search for belonging in the community. There's this profound sense of loneliness and isolation. And meth um, can provide, sometimes it provides an identity. People will um, identify with other slammers, for example, people who inject drugs, kind of a tribal identity of sorts. But um, more it's this ability to feel chemically connected to someone uh, in really almost exclusively sexual or erotic terms. There's a couple other things too. It allows really the celebration of LGBT sex. So if someone is really having an issue uh, feeling comfortable, it really helps them overcome their inhibitions. And, and I've had clients say for the first time, these are young gay men, that on meth for the first time they felt like they really were able to embrace who they were because all, all their inhibitions had been kind of washed away by the drug. And of course, in therapy, what we want them to do is get back to a point where they can feel comfortable with their sexuality without the use of such a dangerous drug. And then finally, there's this access. So if we look at the socioeconomic factors at play here, there's a lot of access issues across socioeconomic lines, racial and ethnic lines. So we're seeing uh, there was a, a sad case in California um, a man named Ed Buck, who was a high-profile Democratic donor, um, two black men overdosed and died in his house, a third overdosed and didn't die. But it turned out that he was basically hosting sex parties, and uh, he would provide the drugs, and he basically had a, a fetish attraction to black men. He would inject them, and sometimes fatally. And this was really all the hallmarks of power and differences in socioeconomic status and this um, really age-old exchange of sex for drugs and uh, all the complicating factors became crystallized in this one case. And ultimately, and it took a while, he was finally indicted on those charges. 
There's a couple of other factors for context here. Hookup culture. Uh, I mentioned the use of sexual apps like Grindr and Scruff. Uh, we see these sex-related apps playing a huge role, not only in, in uh, methamphetamine, but in the boost of uh, certain kind of sexual transmitted infections like gonorrhea and syphilis. And we also see that it's really impacting the kind of cultural norms in the MSM community in terms of substance abuse and kind of raising the bar. To that, you can add complacency regarding HIV. These days is a chronic illness. And so, as I mentioned, nearly half of people who use meth are or will become HIV positive. And this is, of course, an issue uh, ongoing. We see drug-resistant sexually transmitted infections and this really skewing or kind of a lack of any kind of normal, in quotes, uh, sexual identity development. People really become um, stuck in this kind of adolescent hookup um, phase without really moving or having the ability to move beyond into more healthy, intimate relationships. So let's take a look at methamphetamine itself. What, what is it about this drug that, that is so powerful? <clears throat> If we look at how it's manufactured, there's a lot of different different ways to do it. There's recipes in the internet. If you watched Breaking Bad, you've seen there's methods too, but they're called the P2P, the Nazi method, because Nazis uh, actually used methamphetamine in the war, a red phosphorus method, and so on. Um, and so for most of the time we've had meth, and that's years and years, um, at least in this country, meth was manufactured locally, which means that someone would go around and, and collect a whole bunch of Sudafed, which was the, the uh, precursor element, the pseudoephedrine, and to that they would combine a bunch of things from Home Depot, whether it's ether, toluene, battery acid, lighter fluid, uh, all these chemicals, and with really kind of a complicated uh, heating, cooling, boiling, baking, kind of a long process that's quite dangerous, um, people would manufacture methamphetamine. And periodically, you'd hear about the barn blowing up or the outhouse blowing up or whatever they were manufacturing methamphetamine in. Um, and this was, a, this was how we got most of our meth until about 2005. And that was the beginning of this current epidemic. It was really peaking. And the federal government passed the Combat Methamphetamine Act in 2005, which they thought would attack the source of methamphetamine manufacture, which is pseudoephedrine, pseudofed. And it did. They made a law so that to buy Sudafed, you were limited to one pack. You had to show your identification. You had to go to the pharmacy counter. And almost instantly, the uh, raw materials to make Sudafed, to make uh, methamphetamine dried up. And so we saw the mom-pop labs go out of business. And for about a year, uh, methamphetamine supplies really dropped in this country. However, methamphetamine demand stayed the same. And so this is a perfect example of unanticipated consequences in that the Mexican drug cartels stepped in to fill the gap. And what they've done is really refined an old process of manufacturing methamphetamine, so it's highly efficient, and they're really churning out at these factories, uh, meth factories that are along the border from Texas to California, really high-quality, almost pharmaceutical-grade methamphetamine that's much stronger, much cheaper, much more pure, and it's coming into this country in liquid form, usually smuggled in liquid form, recrystallized, and then often distributed by FedEx around the country. So there's a whole kind of new paradigm for drug manufacture uh, for methamphetamine. 
How is it ingested? Uh, almost any way you can think of. Uh, it can be smoked. It can be swallowed, which is not a great way to take meth, just because it doesn't do well in the stomach. It can be hot railed. Hot rail is a very dangerous way to ingest a drug. It's simply you lay the drug using a circle like you would to snort cocaine. You heat up a little glass tube so it's red hot on one end and you put the other end in your nose and you inhale. You just follow that tube around the, the drug and in the space of that short two or three inch tube, um, it will vaporize from the heat right into, and that hot gas will go right in your nose. Very dangerous way to ingest a drug. Um, there's good old smart snorting. There's something we call booty bumping. Um, booty bump is simply to dissolve methamphetamine in a liquid form in water and inject it um, into your rectum, which is a great way to take a drug because there's so many um, uh, areas there that can absorb the drug quickly. Uh, they call that a booty bump. There's slamming or injecting. Um, and really that's kind of the ultimate uh, worst case scenario for methamphetamine. Unfortunately, we're seeing more and more people slam sooner these days. The duration of action for meth is about 10 to 12 hours. Um, so it lasts a long time once it's ingested. So how does it work? You know, meth really works on the limbic system or the reward circuitry of the brain, this old part of our brain that, that gives us little bursts of neurotransmitters, mostly dopamine, when we do things that help us survive as a species. Now, these are called natural rewards. They would include things like cooperation, uh, eating good food, feeling like we belong, uh, having a sense of um, love and loving, supportive community. And for each of those little activities, we get little bursts of dopamine. An example of that, if we have a baseline of 100, uh, food, for example, would be like 150 or one and a half times normal levels of dopamine. The highest level of, or, of dopamine that we can get as human beings that are, in a natural way is an orgasm, which gives us roughly twice as amount or 200 units of dopamine. Above that, we get into, we move beyond natural rewards into drugs. And what drugs can do in terms of flushing out this dopamine from our brain and giving us an artificial high. So the next one up would be nicotine, which actually reduces, or sorry, produces more uh, dopamine than an orgasm. And then cocaine at about 350, and then methamphetamine at almost 1300, or four times the amount of methamphetamine, or sorry, four times the amount of dopamine than cocaine. So really, meth is much more powerful than cocaine in that it produces about four times more dopamine released than cocaine. So it's a much more powerful and therefore highly addictive drug. A couple of the differences between meth and cocaine. And both work in the similar way. Uh, I'll use cocaine first. Uh, a cocaine molecule will roll along in the synapse, that area between two ends of a nerve cell, and plop down and block the dopamine receptor. So when dopamine is released from the other end of a neuron, it kind of floats around in that synapse and can't get absorbed for a period of time. And that excess of dopamine in the synapse, that area between the nerve cells, creates a sense of euphoria. With cocaine, it kind of rolls away off that receptor after about 10 or 15 minutes, and the high starts to rapidly fade. Now, methamphetamine, remember, is a synthetic. Cocaine is not. Cocaine comes from a plant. Methamphetamine, the molecule is 8 or 9 or 10 times bigger, and it sits and plops down on that dopamine receptor 
and it lasts there a long time, from 10 to 12 hours. So the high for methamphetamine is going to be much higher. But it does a couple of other things that are more insidious than cocaine. One, on the one end of the neuron, it really flushes out all that dopamine, uh, so that like a, like a sponge being squeezed. And so the dopamine is really rapidly depleted from someone's uh, body. And on the other end, um, it not only sits on that receptor, that dopamine receptor, but it's neurotoxic. It destroys the receptor. There's a couple of then long-term problems here. One, by flushing out that ringing of the sponge effect, when we lose dopamine, um, several things happen. We are unable to regulate moods. We fall into really hopeless depression. We become impulsive. And uh, life is not very pleasant. And if you talk to some uh, meth users, uh, they'll often have four or five day runs, uh, oftentimes over a weekend. So they'll start on a Thursday, party hard on Friday, Saturday, start to slow down Sunday and try to get back to work maybe on Monday. But they call Tuesday Suicide Tuesdays. And they call that because the dopamine is depleted and they are really suicidally depressed. Uh, now, the, on the other end, I mentioned that the transmitters are destroyed. That really is, is destroying the way that the brain distributes dopamine, that rewards circuitry. And that really has profound effects as well, because uh, without the ability to distribute dopamine in the brain, people will continue that um, depressed experience on a much long, longer-term basis. So when we know that chronic meth users really create a functional brain injury by destroying that dopamine reward circuitry transport system, that can take up to two years to regenerate. And so in that two-year period, people are going to have prolonged experience of lack of concentration, anhedonia, severe depression, and other kinds of impulsive behaviors that really are a reflection of a lack of dopamine balance in their brain. Now, the good news, it does take about uh, two years to recover. It does recover, though. The bad news is the, simply the length of time that it does. And so it's important really to be aware of that, and I believe that's the single biggest factor that explains the higher relapse rate of methamphetamine from other drugs and really what makes um, meth quite different. So if we look at meth, what are the effects? The acute effects... Uh, someone described it as really putting your foot on the gas pedal and just keeping it there. So we have an increased heart rate, blood pressure, pupil size. Basically, people are going into fight or flight. Increased respiration, sensory acuity, energy, um, appetite's decreased, sleep is decreased, reaction time is decreased. So people are really dropped into this fight or flight kind of thing. Psychologically, well, let me do the chronic physical effects first. So that, those are the short term. If we look at the chronic physical effects, a lot of tremor, uh, a lot of weakness, a lot of dry mouth, uh, weight problems, sinus infections. If you can imagine taking like 40 Sudafed, uh, just imagine what that would do to your sinuses. Um, that's kind of what's happening to these people using meth and that it's really drying out everything and therefore they become susceptible uh, to staph infections and to all kinds of sinus infections and other kinds of diseases. They have also all the... Um, amphetamines, particularly methamphetamine, really start to increase core body temperature. So we see people kind of warming up from the inside out. They're, they start to exude oil on their skin, have a lot of uh, headaches, and, and just basically feel unpleasant. Now, psychologically, the acute uh, psychological effects, 
We know that, as I mentioned, it increases confidence. People start to feel good about themselves. People start to feel more alert. Uh, their mood generally goes up. Their sex drive goes up. Uh, energy levels are improved. They become chatty or talkative. Um, we know that meth decreases boredom and loneliness and being timid. And that's really that classic cluster of symptoms that uh, are so impactful in terms of the, the damage this can do and the appeal it has for certain people. <clears throat> now, chronically, chronic psychological effects, we see a lot of confusion, uh, poor concentration, uh, hallucinations, fatigue, memory loss, but almost always it's really characterized by psychotic events. And the hallmark of meth psychosis is paranoia. And I'm talking really well-developed paranoid systems. Uh, I've had clients for months after getting clean and sober still looking at my air vents in my office to see if there were cameras or microphones. Almost all of them thought they, their homes were bugged. Their, um, most of them thought there were elaborate plans from law enforcement and 35, 40, 50 cars, vehicles, special agents from the FBI, all in this elaborate tracking movement of them on their phone and physically following them on the streets. And, uh, and sometimes, uh, because of the impulsive nature and the paranoia, uh, that can be dangerous if people have weapons. But uh, the paranoia is really a hallmark of that. That it generally improves fairly quickly, although if someone has pre-morbid uh, psychotic tendencies, I have seen meth clients where those systems did not abate, um, and they really lasted for a long time. Uh, one chronic um, psychological thing I like to mention is something called formication, F-O-R-M, like Mary, uh, formication, which is really a psychotic feature where people think there's bugs under their skin and they start to itch uh, to the point where they rub their skin raw. And then that dry skin of a meth user can also often have um, scarring or, or uh, a staph infection. So what does this all do in the brain and what are the implications for treatment? You know, we talked about the ongoing damage to the reward circuitry and how for up to 24 months people uh, can have poor concentration and not be able to experience pleasure and have low mood and be impulsive uh, and a lot of those, those issues. But a couple of things happen as well that go along with that. One, methamphetamine, chronic meth use, creates a decrease in verbal memory. And what verbal memory is, is really our ability for, for abstract thinking, for words. So for example, I've had clients who would get clean from meth and one guy, I remember, at his second anniversary, two years clean, finally said, I can finally read a book. Um, until that time, he had real trouble. Words were kind of gibberish. He couldn't concentrate. I'd send him to 12-step meetings, and he really couldn't make sense of the 12 steps and 12 traditions that were posted on the wall. Uh, so this inability to kind of um, manage abstract thoughts or too complicated thoughts really need to be uh, kept in mind when we as therapists use cognitive behavioral therapy, which really requires a little bit of um, the ability to manage thoughts, feelings, actions, consequences, and, and kind of put patterns together. And I found that many of my meth users are really challenged in that initially. So um, a lot of my colleagues and I do, we joke about CBT light, or we don't do CBT at all. I try, I try to use graphs, charts, pictures, other kinds of things. And I do that because while meth decreases the verbal memory we just spoke of, it increases the visual memory, makes it more sensitive. And this happens with cocaine as well, but not to the extent that it does with meth. So what does that mean? That means that people are hyper acute 
to visual imagery and triggering. That's why I mentioned this thing at the beginning of this podcast about how I always try to take that into account if I'm dealing with an audience. I either don't have triggering images or warn people that they're coming. So this can be um, useful to understand if we're trying to help our clients avoid being triggered because if you think about pornography, for example, um, I've had clients just looking, seeing uh, an attractive man on the street that get triggered to use drugs. Um, we had a meth town hall where I live two or three years ago. Several hundred people attended. It was really well attended. Um, but the local paper, not understanding the sensitivity to visual triggering, uh, covered the town hall, which was great. But they put a full page spread of someone injecting a needle into an arm. And that just literally triggered uh, all those meth users, because just that imagery was enough to sort of basically start the, the start them salivating for for the drugs. So I think it's really important to have a, a sensitivity to that visual memory. Now that cognitive recovery I mentioned earlier that does come back, but really, and studies have shown for the first six months or so, the inability to really have effective cognitive or verbal memory um, improving is is quite profound. A couple other things that are just interesting, there's uh, an impairment on facial emotional recognition. There was an interesting study at NYU where they showed a face, uh, the same face of a man uh, with different expressions showing happiness, anger, sad, disappointment, uh, and asked chronic meth users to describe what the emotion was that was being conveyed. And chronic meth users had a lot of trouble discerning what emotion that was. And so they really misread social cues and emotional cues. And interestingly, they almost always assumed it was, um, uh, because of their paranoia, uh, hostility. They, they assumed hostility in the other person. A couple of things that can really affect what we call arousal templates in sex therapy. These are those little maps in our heads of what we find attractive. Um, and those are really in place, interestingly, quite early on, even before we're sexual. But they do develop as we age. And uh, we can add to them. And so it's not unusual for, for example, a porn user, as they just encounter thousands and thousands of images, they'll see something that they never thought of before, but kind of uh, gives them a little charge that maybe a little fetish or something they discover. And the, that gets incorporated into their, their arousal template. The same thing happens with methamphetamine. With all this high sexual arousal, people get, um, uh, they incorporate all these new kind of taboo, kinky, uh, high intensity things into their arousal template. The problem with arousal templates is that once something's in there, uh, it's really hard to get out. And so that's a real relapse risk for people in that oftentimes, especially when they give up the drugs, they're going to have a lack of any kind of sexual desire sometimes for months. And sometimes the only way they can have an orgasm is to fantasize about one of their meth-related fantasies, which is usually pretty kinky or taboo, even though they're not using the drug. But by doing so, they're really keeping that alive. They're slowing down their sexual recovery. And overall, they're increasing their risk of relapse by doing that. So, so to sum all that up, the implications for treatment, I would say, are really this, this poor abstract thinking, uh, this increased visual acuity, increased impulsiveness, this prolonged cognitive impairment, and prolonged problems with mood really are all issues that we clinicians have to manage going forward with people in chemsex recovery. 
There's a couple of the factors I want to mention here. One is the development of tolerance, which is, of course, the need to use more uh, of something. Because with tolerance, it takes more to get the same effect. And we see this with pornography. We see this with stimulants particularly. So if I get a, a really uh, fabulous high today from taking meth, um, if I keep doing it at the same level, quite quickly, I won't be getting that fabulous high anymore. I'm going to need to do something to up the game. So I may take more drugs. I may move from snorting to slamming or injecting. I may start using uh, the drug with more high-risk sexual activity, anything I can do to kind of increase the intensity. And that tolerance really is something that, that really uh, can lead people astray quite quickly because they're constantly going toward more stimulation uh, because of the brain's ability for homeostasis. The brain's constantly adapting and regulating. And as the brain regulates for a certain level of intake of a drug or stimulation, we need more to get the high. So there's that increased need for intensity um, that we see. Another thing is this, I mentioned almost half the people who use meth are or will be living with HIV. And so this is uh, important things for clinicians to be aware of about some interaction. Um, we know that meth, as I mentioned, is associated with high rates of anal sex and low rates of condom use and multiple sex partners and sexual marathons. There's a couple other things to be aware of. There's an interaction between methamphetamine and a certain HIV category of drugs called protease inhibitors. Protease inhibitors were originally an a, um, integral part of HIV therapy as a primary drug. Right now, they're really used more as boosters, which means they're used because they slow down or they impact an enzyme in the liver that really slows down the metabolism of other drugs. And so if you have a protease inhibitor with your HIV regimen, it'll actually slow down the metabolism of those other HIV drugs and make them really more effective for a longer period of time. The problem with that is that that same enzyme that is affected by protease inhibitors is used to metabolize methamphetamine. And so if someone's on a protease inhibitor and taking meth, they can really reach toxic levels of methamphetamine much sooner than they would think, just because the protease inhibitor is keeping that methamphetamine from being metabolized in a way uh, that could benefit the person. So these are all the risks that we've talked about, a lot of the, the uh, problematic use of, of methamphetamine and chemsex. So I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, recovery. Now, for people that have crossed the line to problematic meth use, I really believe that abstinence is an important factor. I don't know anybody who's crossed that line that really can become a social meth user. Um, there, are, there is a role, I think, for harm reduction in this, in that there are a lot of people who don't know if they've crossed that line yet or not. And I think if we demand abstinence from the very beginning, people who are in that sort of pre-contemplative stage, are, we're going to lose them. Uh, so uh, a lot of programs in the country are doing, harm reduction programs are doing kind of this no, no shame, no questions asked, no wrong door, come in, get information. Um, if we can help you cut down, great. Uh, if you want to quit, we'll help you with that as well. Uh, as a clinician, the people that I usually see have already crossed that line. And so most of my work has been focused on abstinence. And we know that that's a long and difficult process. It's relapse prone for the reasons I've mentioned, because the long uh, duration of that brain recovery, 
the high triggering, the pairing of sex and drugs and all the visual triggering and cues that can happen, all that dopamine stuff, uh, those persistent mood concerns, the hopelessness, the anhedonia, the uh, depression. Uh, we also know that the co-occurring sex addiction must be addressed simultaneously. Now, the, the standard protocol with a lot of addictive disorders is, uh, I think rightly, that if there's an active addiction, you can't really do much work on anything else. And that's true. But if we don't address the compulsive sexual behavior at the same time we're dealing with the methamphetamine, we're going to fail. And that's because those two things are, are paired or bonded, as we've been talking about here. Uh, we have to help the client refocus their arousal template. I mentioned all those kind of kinky, taboo, high-risk things can become incorporated. And by the way, there's nothing, I'm, I'm sex positive, there's nothing wrong with being kinky or taboo. But for my clients, if those behaviors had become fused with their drug use, uh, they really represent a great risk. And I suggest my clients steer away from those behaviors um, for a long time, simply because it's such a relapse risk for the drugs. Um, so what I found overall, to summarize the, the impact of recovery, the most important factors we see, three things. Social connection, that I mentioned this overwhelming loneliness we see in the community, uh, the ability for social connection is a healing force. So that can be in recovery groups, it can be 12-step recovery, it can be smart recovery, it can be group therapy, it can be a community group. Uh, I don't care what it is, but that ability to connect with people and have a robust social network is profoundly important to help people move past this addiction. Um, sense of belonging. I mentioned this loneliness in the community. People are kind of at odds. They're feeling... Um, like outcasts in the community often, and that sense of belonging, finding a place, is critically important. And the third thing, this is based on studies, is just retention. We know that if we can keep clients coming back, and I mentioned this is a relapse-prone drug, methamphetamine particularly, if we can keep them coming back, if we can retain them, the, their chances constantly improve to go up. So, uh, and relapse will occur, but ideally, the relapse, I've had clients who had therapy and programmed for some months. They might have had a slip. And they were out for four hours or six hours, and they were right back. And so really, the, the relapse was kind of minimized. Of course, there's no guarantees for that, but it really did, did help. And then finally, I think it's important to, uh, as a sex therapist, I'm always surprised at how uncomfortable a lot of therapists are at discussing sexual things. We're talking about something like HIV or drug and sex pairing or fusion like we're talking about. It's really important that the clinician be comfortable speaking of sex. And I think that often takes um, a supportive environment. So if you're in an agency setting, we know from studies that some kind of supervision is important to have a place where staff can go and talk about uh, their discomfort maybe with a certain discussion about something or process their feelings about it. Um, because a lot of these behaviors, like with porn and sex addiction, um, if you're not used to dealing with the clients, it can be pretty shocking. Uh, and what we don't want to do is react or not manage our own reactions to the client or worst of all, shame them. And so uh, it's really important to have a place where the clinician can do his or her work uh, to effectively manage their relationship with the client. <clears throat> and in closing, I just want to mention a couple practical tips that I use for um, dealing with clients. One is to take a break from sex. 
And I mentioned how this fusion occurs between sex and drugs. And oftentimes then if somebody comes clean, if they stop using drugs, their sex life goes with it. Those two things are paired. And so someone may have no sexual desire for a month, three months, six months, a year, two years. And obviously at some point we need to reintegrate healthy sexuality back into our recovery. And I'll talk about that in a few more steps, but I want to take advantage of that early time when sexual desire is kind of nil um, because it really helps the client focus on getting abstinent with drugs without the complication of all that sexual desire that usually is the cause of relapse. People get horny and they go out and start looking for the drug. So if they don't have sexual desire or sexual drive, it's really kind of a nice uh, grace period when they can really focus on their skills for getting abstinent. That sexual desire may be dormant for a while, but it's not a bad thing. And I help clients try to trust that that time heals. It gives the brain a chance to kind of reboot or re resettle that high level of stimulation back to normal levels of stimulation where natural rewards like good food and loving relationships and a good old orgasm without drugs can, can be pleasurable, which it won't be for a while. So we have to really allow the brain to turn down that volume on stimulus and readjust to that level. And that takes a while. It can take a matter of months. Uh, second one, I have to really avoid keeping what I call meth mode alive by changing habits. So oftentimes uh, I see clients um, saying that, well, my problem is methamphetamine. Why can't I drink alcohol? And the problem with drinking alcohol is that it really disinhibits uh, their desire not to use meth. And so I've had a lot of clients with no intention of using methamphetamine or going out, uh, wanting to have a beer with their friends, and suddenly then they find themselves injecting methamphetamine because they've really lost the ability to refuse and, and to sort of uh, not, not go there in that place because of the alcohol. I also really think it's important to get rid of all sexual apps and online hookup accounts. I mentioned early on that these apps like Grindr and Scruff are, play a critical role in this whole phenomenon. We know from brain scans now too, by the way, that um, the moment someone starts to pull their phone out of their pocket, their brain will light up, that limbic system will light up as if they've taken the drug. And so that's a really important thing. We're going to say that again. We know how the brain looks if we ingest the drug chemically, but someone can start to go and pull out their phone and go on grinder or scruff, not having ingested a thing, and their brain will light up, kind of like drooling or like, like Pavlov's, it's classical conditioning, uh, they're, they're going. And so I really recommend clients don't have those apps on their phone because it's really just uh, high risk. Uh, avoid impulsive behaviors. I, because of that hookup culture that we talked about, I recommend the clients uh, make dead dates. Um, and that's usually terrifying for clients, even clients who've had sex with thousands of men to actually sit down and be face-to-face -face with someone is, is really can be challenging. And so we talk about coffee dates, a 20-minute coffee date to start small, but help them start to relearn how to socialize and, and be together. Um, don't recreate meth sex without the meth. I think people have to grieve that meth sex, that intensity, or the, usually the fantasy of what it was. By the, the reality is not so pretty at the end, but people have that fantasy of this really hot sex that they have to let go of. I think it's important to avoid types of porn associated with chemsex and um, really be cautious about the kind of levels of stimulation they have. And finally, I think it's important to redefine sexual pleasure. And this goes toward recapturing healthy sex and intimacy. 
And so because meth is such a head trip, I ask my clients to really focus on physical sensations. You know, what's going on in your body? What are you feeling? Where are you feeling it? I'd use old Gestalt stuff, you know, that feeling your stomach had a voice and could talk. What would it say? Just kind of make them more conscious of other things besides the head trip that meth sex is to really learn how to connect with people in other ways, in physical ways, to use breath to ground themselves, to kind of constantly regulate their emotions as they get triggered in these intimate settings, which are often terrifying for people without the cover of a drug uh, fog to keep those feelings numb. Uh, so I, I asked them to explore what was arousing before they used drugs. Um, maybe they can go back and reignite some old sexual desire that got kind of hijacked by the drug use. And connect with nature, make a call, play with their cat, distract themselves. Just all those techniques for grounding can really be used to, um, to work. And then finally, there's a sex therapy exercise called Sensate Focus that was developed by Masters and Johnson. I found that really useful for uh, chemsex guys who have partners, and sometimes they don't because they've burned the relationship so badly. Uh, but that's a really a, a, a non-sexual uh, communication Couples communication exercise. It can become sexual later on in the earlier, but in the earlier stages it's not. And it's a really great way to start to redevelop some, some uh, tasks for intimacy. So that um, pretty much covers this relationship. There's a lot more to be said um, in detail, but uh, that gives you an idea of the drugs, the effects the drugs have, why meth particularly and chemsex is kind of a different animal than some other drug use and some of the techniques that you could use uh, to help your clients get through those behaviors. So I'd like to thank you for listening today and let you know you can learn more about Seeking Integrity stream programs at www.seekingintegrity.com and I encourage you to check out our free podcasts, webinars, support groups, and blogs and a lot of other resources too at www.sexandrelationshiphealing.com. And with that, I'd like to thank you very much. Take care. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.